Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and before we kick off today's episode, I'd just like to let you know that enrolments for the Habits of Leadership Academy 2022 cohorts are now open. In the academy, groups of leaders get together and dig into the theories and the research and the opportunities that come with leading in today's organizations. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you are on your leadership journey, the academy is for you. We dig into some of the ideas that we cover in the podcast as well as tackle the challenges that you're facing in your day-to-day work. To learn more about the Academy and to see if it's a good fit for you, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page. Now, on with today's episode. My guest today is one of the world's leading neuroscientists. She's also among the top 1% of most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, is also the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made. She's given a TED Talk, which so far has received over 6 million views. And when I first came across uh, Dr. Barrett's work, I really needed to sit down and reflect on what I thought I knew about how the brain worked. Because it turns out that the vast majority of what I thought I knew about how the brain worked uh, is wrong. And what's more, most of what most people think about the brain appears to be wrong. So I reached out to Dr. Barrett to see if she'd be keen to, to come on and have a chat and share with us some of her thinking. And I'm pretty confident that today is going to provide a bit of a challenge for some of us because most of what we've learned in leadership courses, most of what we've read in books or perhaps you know in blog articles, well, it turns out some of that might not be accurate. So, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So, as I mentioned in, in my intro, I've just finished reading uh, Seven and a Half uh, Lessons About the Brain, and it struck me right from the outset that it turns out most of what I've learned about the brain, and I, I should put this absolutely in parentheses informally. Obviously, I've done no, I, I don't, haven't done any formal study of the brain, but everything I've learned, everything that seems to be, should I say, common wisdom, um, whether you're saying everything, but this is how I interpreted it, it struck me that at least most of the things I seem to have learned about the brain um, appears to be wrong. Well, maybe some of the big highlights, right? So, yeah. Some of the, yeah. So I'm curious, um, I, I, I guess you could answer this quite succinctly, or this could be the start of a 10-part miniseries on cable TV. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, what, what are those highlights? What are those highlights? And, and why, why are we misunderstanding them? Well, explaining the highlights is probably a little easier than explaining why this uh, situation has occurred. But I would say one big one is um, the idea that, you know, your brain, uh, that deep lurking deep inside your brain somewhere is an ancient lizard brain. Um, and, uh, and then in evolutionary time, you know, what got laid on top of that was a limbic system, limbic meaning border, the tissue that's bordering your lizard brain. Um, and then um, the novel neocortex, the big mantle, cortical mantle of your brain. And the idea that um, your brain evolved like sedimentary layers of rock is just wrong. Um, and it's actually you know, but it's very entrenched in, um, in modern culture. And so that's, I think that's part of the reason is very entrenched and it makes a lot of sense to us, at least in the West, because it actually is a Western theory of morality of what it means to be a moral person. And eventually it became a theory of, or not a theory, but like an idea, a set of ideas about, what it means to be a, a healthy person. Um, but the idea of, uh, you know, that you have an ancient inner beast um, that has to be controlled by uh, rationality is, um, 
is really uh, an origin story that comes from, you know, Plato. Um, and so it comes from ancient Greece. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's one reason is that it makes a lot of sense to us. It's, it's embedded in the law, it's embedded in economics, it's embedded in kind of our everyday understanding of when we're responsible for our behavior and, and, and when we're not. Um, and I think the other reason that, you know, we continued to believe for a long time that, um, that the brain evolved this way and that, that, you know, our brains are kind of like a battleground between our urges and desires on the one hand and our rational mind on the other. And, you know, they're in, they're sort of in a battle for the control of our behavior. And, you know, if rationality wins, you're a moral person and a healthy person. And if your inner urges win, then you're either immoral because you didn't try hard enough um, or because um, you can't control yourself, you know, or you're sick because <laughs> you because, uh, you know, you, you couldn't exact control and you're mentally ill. And the other reason why this, I think, story has stayed with us for a long time is that, um, you know, it was popularized in the 1970s by Carl Sagan you know, who was a real authority figure, you know, bringing science to the people. Uh, but about that time when he was popularizing this view, um, the actual evidence against this view was buried in molecular biology. It's, it's you know, it was siloed away in a field that is very, very hard, even for scientists who aren't trained as geneticists or as molecular biologists or, or people who study embryologic develop embryological development um, it's very hard for people to access. So, you know, one of my colleagues had to tutor me basically for like a year in learning embryo enough embryology that I could read the papers myself uh, in order to summarize them. And most people don't, even most scientists don't take, don't have that much time to, to take um, to, to learn something new. And so there's a, there's been sort of a translation problem also in getting the information out, which is partly why, you know, I wrote seven and a half lessons about the brain. It strikes me that, um, cause you, it's, it strikes me that you talk in the past tense, you know, we used to believe this and, um, you know, this, this is what was thought. And, and I think, would I be right in saying that's, that, that's only a small proportion of people who perhaps might be thinking in the past tense with regards to this. Yeah, I think that that's right. So uh, let me be really clear. So when I say, you know, we used to think this, I would, <laughs> what I mean is maybe what I mean is I used to think this and I don't think it anymore. Um, uh, I, well, I mean, I've known for some time that it wasn't really true, but there are still some scientists who will defend this view and explicitly. But I think most scientists know that it's not correct. They'll still, though, talk about, you know, the prefrontal cortex regulating the amygdala as if, like, this means that rationality is regulating emotion or something. And so that I think these uh, ideas, uh, whether what's called the triune brain, um, this idea of, like, three parts, you have three parts to your brain, you know, instincts in your in lizard brain, uh, emotions in your limbic system, and you know, there is no actual limbic system in your brain and no brain, no, no animal has a lizard brain except a lizard. But uh, the point being, and most of your cortex isn't new, so you can't really call it a neocortex. Um, mm. It's called an isocortex. But, um, but I think most scientists explicitly now understand that, that this is not correct way to think about brain function nor brain evolution but maybe still are implicitly relying on some of those ideas uh, more than they should. So you, you, you're quite clear in saying that you used to think this and scientists now think this and you now think this, but here's my thing. Most scientists aren't running leadership courses. For Most sure. Most scientists aren't in necessarily as vocal in the education space, for example. And and what I see, just a cursory 
Google search this morning um, yep. of of leadership courses of of approaches to education. You know the word limbic system, for example. For you for you to say there's no such thing as the limbic system, that might be common sense to you, but I can assure you there'll be plenty of people driving in their car listening to this who go, "Sorry, what?" Right. I know exactly. But I want I do want to say that you know when when Paul McLean actually, who is the scientist who who proposed the idea of a limbic system. I mean, let me be really clear that the idea of limbic tissue goes all the way back to, you know, um, the 17th century. Um, But the word limbic for many, many years was used as an anatomical designation. It, It means something about the way that neurons are connected to each other and the way they talk to each other. Um, it's only in the 1930s and 40s when the word limbic took on a functional meaning. This is something I explain in um, How Emotions Are Made, um, the, my first book. It's only then that it took on this functional meaning to refer to emotions. And when uh, Paul McLean published the seminal papers on um, uh, the Trian brain, a number of neuroscientists spoke up, some of whom were his great friends, um, to say, wrong like there's no evidence this is a, a a system and i think the important thing maybe for listeners to know is that it doesn't really matter how you look at a brain you can look at it in terms of its chemicals you can look at it under the microscope in terms of its you know structural connections you can look at it any way you want there's no signpost in nature that tells you what is a system and what isn't a system? Like one of my first questions when I started training in neuroscience was, well, if one neuron is synapsing on another, which means they're talking to each other, how do you know whether they're both part of the same circuit or whether one, the same system, or or whether one is modulating the other? So they're in different systems, but one is like influencing, one system is influencing the other. And I asked, you know, many very notable uh, neuroscientists and neuroanatomists. And the answer is, you don't, you can't. There is nothing in nature which tells you this. You know, you decide as the scientist what's, what the boundaries of the system are. And then you decide what's an input to the system and what's an output to the system. And this may sound like esoteric stuff, but it's actually really serious and important stuff. So for example, um, is your immune system a separate system from uh, your, um, you know, autonomic nervous system that is your that that controls your heart and your lungs and so on? Well, some people would say yes, and some people would say, uh-uh, there's nothing biological there. That's just historical. Or, you know, some people would say, well, you know, the gut-brain axis. Everybody's talking about the gut-brain axis. Um, you know. Is your gut really an extension of your brain, like into your body? Is that is that really the right way to think about it? And some people would say, no way. And other people would go, well, yeah, actually, they're kind of anatomically, you know, they're developed in exactly the same part of the embryo. So, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. There's really only better and worse ways to think about it. You know, no, there's no like true way. But what is the case is that the parts of the brain that have been labeled limbic as either part of this like mythical limbic system or just based on their anatomical designation touch every so-called system in your brain. I mean, you can start at, you know, the origin of sight in your brain or the origin of hearing in your brain or the origin of touch or the origin of movement in your brain. And you can trace it all the way to these tissues. And there's no principled way to say that this is like a special system that it just doesn't work like that. And, and, and science, some neuroscientists have made this point again and again and again. It's just that they weren't Carl Sagan and they didn't have, I'm not just blaming him, but I mean, they didn't have the command of, um, you know, hundreds of, of millions of, of people's attention. And, you know, one of the things I do explain in, um, in seven and a half lessons is, you know, we're, 
humans are social animals. We're social. We evolved that way. And we evolved so that we don't have to learn everything ourselves. We um, communicate with others. We mirror copy others. We learn from others experience and what they say. And we communicate really efficiently with language. And the others that we tend to listen to are the ones who are famous and the ones who have prestige and the ones who have power. So this is important because when someone who you respect or who you trust or who you just admire tells you something, you're more likely to think it's true. And so, you know, that's what that's what the scientific evidence is up against. It's up against um, some very, very notable people in leadership training and in the law and in economics talking about, you know, the rational actor or, you know, the, the, which is called the rational man um, uh, hypothesis, or, you know, the idea that, you know, your, your limbic brain hijacked your rationality. Crimes of passion, for example. Crimes of passion. Exactly. And it still is a defense in some countries, Mm. you know, Um, that that's really what, what you're up against. And you're up against also, Listen, you know, like I often say, if I had not seen the evidence myself in my own data that I myself have collected, you know, I'm not sure I'd believe it because I'm just like you. My my experience is I see something and I react to it. And, Mm. you know, that it's a struggle not to eat that second piece of chocolate cake or, you know, to drag my ass out of bed in the morning when really what I want to do is go back to sleep or to not lose my temper at somebody who has just, you know, obstructed my goals in some very serious way or, or whatever, you know, I'm just like everybody. I have that. I feel sometimes like my emotions have hijacked me, but I know better because I, I know that's not really how it works, that your experience, your brain creates my brain, our brains create experiences for, for us that do not reveal how brains work. And knowing that is is a real skill. I mean, it's and being able to to deploy it is a real skill, and it's a learnable skill. And that's partly why I wrote these books. So, and I think that's a beautiful segue because you're saying even though you know, the, the difference between knowing something but then feeling something, and obviously the feeling side of it can be the more compelling. Um, argument but if we are in the business of educating people to lead better teach better parent better whatever it might be just understand themselves better how again this could be a very succinct or incredibly long answer how does the brain work then so if it's not reacting if I'm not reacting to other people I know in the book I think one of the things that you know and and this risk sort of tripped me out a little bit, but it's you, you talk about the brain creating almost like a hallucination of sorts that we're sort of experiencing, predicting, and, and obviously I'm now mangling your, your your explanation. So maybe I'll just throw it to you how 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 does the brain work if it doesn't work the way we think it does? Yeah, so this is really a trip, I have to say, and um, I'm also just going to preface this by saying. There is nothing in your, well, not nothing, but very, very, very few times in your experience will you have an experience that will reveal to you how your brain actually, you know, where the brain reveals its its secrets to itself, really, because you are your Mm -hmm. brain, you know. Um, But, and I'm, I think by nature, I'm just really skeptical. I mean, I didn't learn to be skeptical. Um, I think I probably gravitated to being a scientist because I'm inherently skeptical and kind of curmudgeon about things. Um, I don't believe everything I'm told and I'm often challenging people to um, justify what they believe and I, because I hold myself to that standard too. And I'm very data-driven. Like I'm really data-driven in a very sometimes infuriating way if you were to ask my, my daughter <laughs> or my husband. Um, but the the preponderance of evidence here is so overwhelming and it's also coming from scientific domains that do not speak to each other so they're all kind of coming to the same conclusion independently using their own methods and their own you know um uh met- their own methods and, and their own kind of um uh tools of inquiry 
you know, our brains um, don't react to things in the world. They predict. They predict what's going to happen next. Your brain's always guessing. And those guesses are not some abstract set of things. Those guesses are based on what's, you know, your brain believes is happening right now in your own body and in the world. It, it uses past experience. It remembers. It's, it's constructing memories. It's assembling memories. Automatically, you have no experience of remembering anything. It's just happening very automatically to predict what's going to happen next. And those predictions are actually your brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare your body to, to prepare your heart rate to change, maybe your, um, your breathing um, depth to change, uh, you know, shuttling glucose around to where it needs to be so that you can move your body in a way in a moment from now. So it's starting to prepare the motor actions that you will actually take in a moment from now. And it's also changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare to receive what you will see in a moment from now and what you will to receive information from the world about sights and sounds and smells and so on. And there are lots and lots of everyday examples that we could give, um, you know, uh, to to show that this is the case because um, it certainly seems to violate every every aspect of common sense um, but for example um, one of my favorites which I used in seven and a half lessons was that um, you know when you're thirsty um, you take a drink you know you might drink an, like a glass of ice water if you're really thirsty you might drink two and then you're not thirsty anymore your thirst is quenched except it takes 20 minutes for the water in your stomach to make it into your bloodstream to communicate with your brain that there is a change in um, the osmolarity of your blood. So your thirst is quenched 20 minutes before the evidence, act before your brain actually gets the evidence. So where the hell does it come from? I mean, like, what is that about? It's creating your experience before it even knows whether you uh, are hydrated properly or not. And the answer is because your brain has a lifetime of experience of having learned the statistical re relationship between making certain motor movements, drinking, and later having you know, your thirst quenched. Um, it's the same thing with eating, right? It takes about 15 to 20 minutes after eating for the cells in your gut to um, communicate up to the brain that more glucose is available. And that's actually what turns off your appetite, those signals. So if you eat really, 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 really quickly, it's going to take, you're going to eat a lot more than uh, you would if you were eating slowly before those signals get to your brain. And, um, because that's actually what's controlling your your eating behavior, or at least partly controlling your eating behavior. You know, I'm thinking we're based in Australia here. Is it a similar thing where someone's in the in the garden rummaging through some stuff and they see a hose pipe, but interpret it as a snake? Yeah, absolutely. It's out. exactly. Is that, is yeah. that the same thing? Yeah, that's it's happening? exactly that. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And we do this all the time. Because in England, you wouldn't interpret a hose pipe as a snake. You're, you're exactly right. Snakes are less common. So when an infant is born, an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that gets it, the rest of its wiring instructions from the world that it lives in, both the physical world and the social world. So if you grow up in Australia, you, um, your brain wires itself not, you know, when you see uh, a pretty shell on the ground, you know, you're on the beach, you, you don't bend over and pick it up necessarily. You don't like immediately reach out to automatically reach out to touch it. Um, because you know, there's some probability that however low it is, that it could be something that could kill you. Right. And kids learn this at a really young age, but, but when we see something, you know, out of the corner of our eye or, you know, we're on a beach. And so, you know, your brain's predicting what you're going to see and it's changing the firing of your neurons to um, 
lead you to see those things, more likely to see those things, before you've literally registered whether the shell is there or not, before the information makes it to your brain to confirm the prediction or change it, you're already bending down to pick up that shell. Because the interesting thing about predictions, the way they work is that your motor predictions come first and the what you experience, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you feel are a consequence of those motor predictions. So your brain is sort of figuratively speaking, asking itself, well, the last time I was in this situation um, and I was in this physical state and I, uh, you know, prepared these movements, what did I see next? What did I hear next? What did I smell next? And then your brain starts to prepare those things. And so if you're, um, if you're in Australia, then, you know, a hose in your garden could be a snake because that's, your brain is wired wired itself to your world. Whereas that's less likely to be the case, like in the North, you know, like in Northern um, parts of, of the U S or in the UK or, you know, like in England or in Canada or whatever. And in those cases um, where you've made a, an error prediction error, we would call it in the, you know, in the lingo, um, your brain has two choices. It can learn the prediction error, correct its predictions, right? So that's the fancy name for updating your predictions. It's called learning. That's what learning is. Or it can just go with its prediction and not take in that new information. Um and then you will see things that aren't there. You will hear things that aren't there. Um, and this also happens um, in, you know, for in the U.S., for example, and uh, there's a, a virtual epidemic of police officers, you know, seeing guns where there are no guns. And that's a very complicated situation. But part of the part of what's complicated about it is that um, your brain is preparing you to see something before the object actually, you know, comes into view. And if that weren't true, there'd be no soccer, no football, no baseball, no, there'd be no sports with balls, you know, where you hit them, throw them, catch them, and so on. You know, baseball, for example, is predicated, actually all sports pretty much that involve balls, passing balls or pucks or whatever, predicated on it couldn't exist if you didn't um, if you didn't have a predictive brain. Um, your you know your brain can't control the motor movements of your body fast enough um, if you're reacting, and it's also very metabolically inefficient to run a body that way. I'm just drawing my own connection here, which is why when athletes start overthinking things, they they freeze and they choke because they they, li- they literally cannot do it. Yeah. And I'll just, I mean, I will admit that, um, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in Toronto, the home of the Maple Leafs, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs, great, a great, uh, hockey team. I've lived in Boston for many years, you know, the Red Sox, I have no interest in sports until about five years ago when I learned really what's happening in baseball between a pitcher and a batter. And how, you know, the batter, so if you have a, if you have a major league pitcher who's throwing a ball at 90 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour, there is no way in reality that the batter can wait to see the ball before he lifts his bat to swing. So what's happening is that the batter's brain is predicting where the ball is going to be in a moment from now. And when he's swinging, he's swinging to that spot. So both guys are making predictions and they're trying to psych each other out, you know, and, uh, or, you know, a couple of, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, um, the new England Patriots football team, American football, um, you know, have a, had a quarterback, um, Tom Brady, who then was a great quarterback who was traded to uh, Tampa Bay. And so Tampa Bay was playing the Patriots. And so the his team, his old teammates were setting up for plays to totally psych him out because his brain, Tom Brady's brain would automatically predict that they were going to be doing one thing. And then, you know, they would do something else because they knew what he'd be predicting because, you know, he, he 
he helped devise some of those plays, right? I mean, Tampa Bay, I should say, still won. So, you know, it is what it is. But um, the point, my point is that um, you can find evidence of prediction all over the place and, um, and also evidence of failures, massive, catastrophic, tragic failures of prediction. You know, wars that were started uh, because um, people uh, made the wrong predictions, the wrong guesses. Yeah. And, um, but here's one that I find particularly tragic. So um, when you, so you're, the way to think about this is that your brain is, is stuck in a dark, silent box, which is your skull. And it's receiving sense data through the sensory surfaces of your body. So through the retina of your eyes, it's receiving information about light waves and, um, and, you know, through the cochlea of your ears, it's receiving, you know, changes in sound waves and so on, pressure, air pressure waves, and so on and so forth. And from your body, it's receiving also sense data about, you know, gushes and tugs and, you know, contractions and what have you. These are the outcomes of some set of causes, but your brain doesn't know what the causes are. It only receives the outcome. So if you hear a loud bang, what is that loud bang? What caused it? It matters what caused it. It, it could have been a slamming door. It could have been thunder outside. It could be a gunshot if you're living in the United States. Um, and, you know, what your brain believes is the cause, um, you know, determines what the action is that your brain will prepare. And it's not like your brain guesses at a cause and then prepares your action. The, the prediction of the action is the guess at the cause. That is the guess. And so it's guessing, you know, so do I, you know, do I like go and, you know, put up the, the top on my convertible or do I close all the windows? Is it going to rain or do I need to go help somebody, you know, cause you know, um, a door slammed and it's windy or, you know, do I need to take cover? Like, what do I need to do? And so your brain in a split second, if it was reacting, like maybe you hear that noise unexpectedly, then your brain makes a prediction and it might not even wait to find out, uh, you know, the confirmation or, or it, it'll just execute the action immediately. But let's take the case of like, a, you have like a, a pain in your arm. So you're feeling a pain in your arm, or maybe you're having really bad indigestion. Well, that sensation could be caused by many things and it your brain will guess make a guess as to what the cause is and it's guessing using past experience and sometimes it might happen that you feel the pain and then you you wonder gee what could it be but most of the time the guessing is happening really automatically so you go to the emergency room and you tell the doctor um, the emergency room doctor. And if you're a woman and you're having chest pain in your arm or indigestion and the doctor does a workup and the doctor doesn't find anything wrong with you, the doctor will send you home, tell you that really you're anxious. That's, that's the doctor's prediction. You're anxious. And, and you may have made sense of that sensation that way as well. But women over the age of 65 die more than men in these circumstances. And I personally know three people who lost their mothers this way. That's tragic. That's completely preventable. But, but it's just like seeing this, it's just like seeing the hose and, 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 um, but your brain is predicting a snake. And so you see a snake, um, you know, your brain uses what it knows. It uses what it's learned. And one of the things that we've learned is, unfortunately, that, you know, women are more anxious than men. That's actually not true. There's no evidence to suggest that's true, but that is a belief that people have. And there's a really interesting story on a podcast called The Circle of Willis by my friend Jim Cohn, who is a neuroscientist, who um, it's the Halloween story. I can't remember, maybe from 2017 or 2018. I can't remember which one, but where he tells the story of being, um, you know, what he would say is he was having real discomfort in his 
chest, which, you know, his doctor said was anxiety. And he thought was he was experiencing his anxiety. And he laid down for to have a nap, except what was going through his head, according to him, is that, you know, we had had this conversation on his podcast, and I had told him this story. And so he thought, well, okay, it's probably just anxiety. I'm going to make a fool of myself, but I'm just going to go to the hospital anyway. So, so he went to the hospital and they checked him out. And, you know, he had no symptoms of a heart, impending heart a cardiac event. And so they were ready to send him home. But he didn't want to go home because the pain was getting worse. And he really wanted to see a cardiologist. And because he's a man, they didn't send him home. This is when they would send a woman home. Like, you're anxious, honey, go, you know. In fact, one person I know, her mother was told, you're anxious, go get a marital therapist. That's what she was told. Um, so he waited. The cardiologist shows up. And as the cardiologist is walking into the room, he has a massive coronary, which is called a widow maker. And they had to perform you know, an intervention on him without anesthesia to save his life. But thankfully, you know, he was in the emergency room. And the point is that everybody's brains were predicting incorrectly. And despite the fact that he had certain risk factors, you know, those weren't sufficiently salient to people to correct their predictions. So it is tragic. There are really tragic, there can be really tragic consequences. Um, when you when you don't learn from your errors. So if we um, dial down the tragic nature of what we're talking about, and even just think about it, because one of the examples that you used before, you know, like some people get in the way of our goals and some people infuriate us or, or whatever. And, and prior to this podcast, people might think, I just can't help it. I just react. They drive me crazy and, and whatever. It sounds like it's more a case of, well, I'm, you know, over time I've learned that this person makes me feel like this. And so I'm kind of going to go into this already ready for the argument, even though, um, and, and maybe perhaps this is why we misinterpret what people say, etc. I guess my, my question is, what can we do about that? How do we oh, yeah. short circuit or, or put a little checkpoint in place to go, oh, hang on, is my, is my hallucination here? <laughs> is my prediction here um, even, even remotely correct? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing to understand really is that, you know, all, everything we experience to some extent is constructed exactly in the way that hallucinations are constructed. And um, I started using this language like a decade ago, but um, my colleague, Andy Clark, who's a philosopher, talks about them as controlled hallucinations because they're hallucinations that are being controlled by the external, you know, by the sense data from the external world and from your body. Um, and actually, a new book just came out a couple of weeks ago by Anil Seth, using, you know, explaining consciousness as a function of prediction. And he also uses the term um, controlled hallucination. I think the thing to remember is that your brain is wiring itself to its world, wires itself to the experiences that it has. It changes its wiring based on the experiences and the actions that it has and that it takes. And that happens really fast when you're a little. It happens not so fast when we're big, when we're grown up, but it still happens. And so every time your brain constructs you know, assembles memories as predictions, those, if they turn out to be right, that is the sense data confirm them, they are strengthened. And when they turn out to be wrong, they're weakened. So in a sense, if you invest the energy to cultivate new experiences for yourself, to learn new words or cultivate new experiences or be curious instead of being certain, um, explore instead of exploit, you know, instead of using what you know, you explore for new information. All of this is a metabolic investment that you're making. It might not feel that way, but it is. And, and partly that's why sometimes it feels hard. Um, but you're always in a sense cultivating your past which allows your brain to predict differently in the future. And it's kind of like driving, you know? Um, at first it's hard, but the more you practice it, the more automatic it gets and then the easier it gets. And 
this is really how it works. And it works this way miraculously. I mean, like, you know, people can learn um, not to experience test anxiety. Doesn't mean that they don't feel, you know, that their heart isn't pumping and, and they aren't sweating and all of that when they approach a test. It just means that they, they've learned to um, get their butterflies flying in formation by making different predictions. And as a consequence, they can pass tests, they can graduate from college, that changes their earning potential for the rest of their lives by hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Um, here's a trivial example. Uh, I have a colleague who works down the hall from me and he does research on positive emotions, how it, gratitude and compassion and awe you know, are all really helpful emotions to learn how to cultivate. And I think I mentioned to you already that I'm kind of a skeptical person. So I was like, seriously, really? I mean, like, really? So I read the papers and sure enough, the evidence really is in the papers, but I'm still not convinced. So I think, okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm going to try this myself. I want evidence. I want to see the evidence, not just in data, but in data in my, from my own life. And so I'm keeping a record. Okay. I'm keep collecting data on myself and I'm, um, I decided, all right, every day for five minutes, I'm going to cultivate an experience of awe anywhere I can. So I can be walking down the street. There's a dandelion poking up through a crack in a sidewalk. And I'm going to look at that and I'm going to cultivate an experience of awe at like the power of nature to be unconstrained by, uh, you know, humans attempts to uh, control it. Or, you know, yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who I had been to New Zealand. I was actually in New Zealand uh, right when the COVID, you know, uh, pandemic was announced uh, and I had to fly home. But, you know, I had gone into one of these caves with these little glowing maggots, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, she was like, oh, it's a glowing worm. I'm like, it's not a worm. It's a maggot. It's like a it's it's a you know, it's the larva of a of a of a kind of a fly and it glows and you know but that's the most amazing one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life actually uh you know it was beautiful and it doesn't matter that in fact it's even more it's even more amazing and awe-inspiring that it's a maggot for god's sake but it's beautiful it's not even a worm it's not even a worm and um but you know so so there I am and I'm practicing and I'm practicing and I'm practicing and wouldn't you know it when I really need it, you know, like I, I can cultivate awe just like in the drop of a hat, you know, like you're, you're on a zoom call or whatever. And, you know, you're talking to people around the world and then, you know, a satellite moves or, you know, somebody breathes a long way, who knows, but something happens and, you know, the whole, the whole meeting falls apart for five or 10 minutes and you can see people getting really worked up. And, you know, my reaction now, my response, my prediction is that, you know, I create the experience of all I say, you know, the fact that we can even see each other at all. I mean, think about it, Dan, we are how many thousands of miles away from each other? The fact that we can even hear each other's voices is miraculous. And when you can teach your brain, basically your brain teaches itself to make different experiences out of the same sense data and you practice it, it's a skill that you learn that you can use to give your nervous system a break when it really needs one or to you know, if you are, you know, for example, cultivating awe, um, you know, you are a speck for a minute. And if you're a speck, then your problems are a speck. And then the stress just decreases, even just for a minute so that you can catch a breath, you know. And there are lots of ways that you can do this. My husband came up, my husband works at Google. He came up with a great one the other day. Um, he, um, somebody was, you know, giving him a, a hard time. And um, in the past, and so he had a meeting coming up with this person and, you know, he was not worked up about it. And, you know, his predictions were basically very in line with uh, what was going to be a very productive meeting. And I was like, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, he's like, I just think about, you know, however that person evaluates me, I just make sense of it as like electrical activity in their brain. 
was like, <laughs> I'm going to use that. That's really good. It's just like the evaluative, the weight of the evaluation of someone else just dissipates immediately. Um, uh, when you just think of it as electrical activity, all the power behind it and um, all of the withdrawals that it can make out of your own energy budget, you know, just they they just go away. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of so many <laughs> different for, forums where just being able to objectify that and, and remove, as you say, the weight and the, the privilege we give other people's opinions, just that in itself. You yeah, know, and, and being able to predict things differently there, that would be so powerful for... Or learn, or even just learn to be curious. Just learn when someone says something mm. that you don't like or that you disagree with, instead of arguing immediately, which is like you're preparing the argument already before they've even finished, you know, prediction. Yeah. Um, you, you can ask, I'm curious to understand why you believe that. I'm wondering what kind of evidence would 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 allow you to change your mind about that like you know you can just ask questions of people instead of being so certain that you understand what's going on inside their own heads we we have this myth in our you know it's it's a myth as much as you know the trion brain is a myth or the reacting brain is a myth we have this myth that facial movements are expressions that can be read like words on a page and that body movements are a language to be read like words on a page not true, right? Your brain is guessing. Your brain is guessing at what a vocalization yeah. means. It's guessing at what facial movements mean. It's guessing at what body postures mean. And it doesn't really matter how certain you feel that you are right and that you're a great judge of character. Your brain is guessing like every other brain and you could be wrong. And still feel yeah. really confident that you're right, you know. And when when you like you say, other brains are doing this, and so you think about this in group dynamics, in a boardroom, a, a change room, a, a classroom. I'm I'm curious, and, and I appreciate we're sort of coming up against the end of uh, our time here, but I'm um, I'm curious about that idea you mentioned it there, our, our energy budget and our uh, this this metaphor of of a budget and how we make withdrawals not only from our own but perhaps other people's as well with the way that we predict <laughs> and act. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you're in a position of um, influence, for want of a better word, so let's say you are a leader in an organisation or you're an educator in a classroom or you're a coach in a, in a team, how much influence do you have given that as you mentioned there lots of people are making predictions so you know but how much influence as an educator do i have on the experience that this kid's going to have in the class if that kid is predicting rather than reacting to what i'm doing and and likewise for a leader yeah. and likewise for a coach of a football team for sure so and i'll say this both to you as a scientist and also as the director of a lab um, of 25, you know, young minds that uh, it, it's my responsibility to, you know, nurture and also in the classroom and also as a mother. And, you know, I can go on and on um, as a science communicator. Um, and it's the following that, you know, your brain's most important job is not uh, thinking. It's not rationality. It's not feeling. It's not even seeing. Your brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body in a metabolically efficient way. <laughs> and, you know, you've got like a lot of drama going on inside you, Dan, right now. And so does every one of our listeners. And so do I. And we're like largely blissfully unaware of it, I hope. Because, you know, if you actually were aware of all the stuff going on inside your body, you certainly wouldn't be listening to anything I was saying. Um, uh, and, you know, the way to think about it is that um, even though we don't experience every hug we give, every insult we bear, every scowl we make, every, you know, um, we don't experience that in these budgeting terms, but really the way to think about it is that your brain is constantly running a budget for your body. The technical term is allostasis. Your brain's constantly and trying to predict, anticipate the needs of the body and attempt to meet those needs before they arise. So the, so that the nutrients are there right when it, they're required and not a minute, second, millisecond later. Um, so predicting 
and correcting is a more metabolically efficient way to run a body or any system, frankly, than um, any engineer, any, any system, like as an engineer, you, you know, there's control theory and this is known very well. It's more metabolically efficient, more, more energy efficient to predict and correct than it is to react. So if you think about your brain as running a budget for your body, it's not budgeting money. It's budgeting glucose and salt and water and oxygen and all the nutrients that all the cells in your body need at all times. And it's, it's budgeting expenditures and deposits. So everything that you think, everything that you do, everything that you learn is a cost. But there are also deposits that you can make. So the two most expensive things your brain can do is move your body, like exercise, for example, um, or learn something new. Because ambiguity, ambiguity and uncertainty, very expensive for a human brain. Humans do not like ambiguity and uncertainty. It feels unpleasant. And that's because it's a drain on your, it's a major withdrawal on your body budget. Because your brain is having to prepare too many action plans. There's just too much, you know, it doesn't, it, it, yeah. it, it's predicting everything, right? It's, it's trying to predict yeah, everything. Exactly. Yeah. And one important thing to understand is that if you are not sleeping well, if you, you or your team or your students or whoever don't sleep enough, don't eat healthfully, don't exercise on a regular basis, it will be harder for the um that that person's brain to 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 regulate their body budget and if a person starts to spend more than they're depositing they start to run a deficit and that deficit translates into um eventually you know illness of some sort a metabolic illness like cardiac disease or diabetes or depression or later in life Alzheimer's. And the thing I want to point out is that every time your brain does something not metabolically efficiently, you're paying a little tax. So maybe it's preparing you. You're preparing for an interaction with your trainee who you know is very defensive and resistant. In the past, that's what's happened. And so your brain is already preparing you for a big metabolic outlay. And it doesn't really, in some ways, it, it's it's bad for different reasons. It, if the person turns out to, re, to, to respond to you that way, maybe they're making similar predictions. You know, that's metabolically costly for you. But it's less costly in some ways than if they don't. And if you don't have the energy to learn and update your predictions, you're just going to keep making the same predictions, facing the same, and you might actually even be preparing for a big metabolic outlay when you don't need it. And that turns out to have real costs. The interesting thing about the cost is that it's not like you're going to have a heart attack right there on the spot. It's just these little taxes that you pay. It's like everything is slightly more expensive than it needs to be. So an example is if you are, when you're eating within two hours of eating a meal, if you are stressed, meaning what is stress? It's your brain preparing your body for a, a big metabolic outlay. That's, you know, there's a release of cortisol, not because cortisol is a stress hormone. It's not a stress hormone. Another myth. Cortisol is a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream quickly because your brain predicts your cells will need it for this big metabolic outlay. Like, getting up in the morning, for example, or exercising or interacting with someone who, you know, is ornery and salty and objectionable sometimes. The point is that um, the tax that you pay is a little tax, the little tax every time. So when you're eating within two hours, if you're stressed, it adds 102 calories to your meal, the, uh, the, um, the equivalent of 102 calories. That's 11 pounds a year. If you're stressed chronically, that means that you and I could eat the same things, but if I'm stressed and you're not, I'm going to actually gain weight <laughs> because it's, you know, because my, because my metabolism is just not as efficient um, as it would be if it, if everything was running smoothly. And so chronic stress, which is, you know, paying these little metabolic taxes doesn't harm you in the moment, right? Chronic stress is just 
you spend and you don't repay. There's also good stress where you you spend and you do repay and you need that kind of stress, good stress to keep yourself in shape, to keep your nervous system in shape. Exercise is a really good example. It's a really good investment of spending energy because you then replenish that energy. But, you know, so if I'm a leader, I want to make sure that uh, I'm going to get to your social, the social part of the question in a minute, but I, I think this part's really important too. You know, the research shows that in innovation sectors um, of industry, some of the best predictors of productivity are things like work-life balance. Um, do people get enough sleep? Um, are, there, are they hydrated sufficiently? Do they get enough light? Is there enough green stuff around? which actually changes the oxygen, you know, slightly changes oxygen concentrations. I mean, like these, all of these things are little things, but they all make, when they add up to a really big difference. The other thing the research shows um, is that, and this is, I should say, I, I even know about this work because uh, a consultant named Andrew Mawson, um, who, um, you know, architects work environments actually, you know, wrote to me and said, do you know about this? Is this, can you understand this in a body budgeting way? And I was like, oh my God, you totally can understand. That's like, he's exactly right. And so I took a nosedive into that literature and sure enough, another really good predictor is interpersonal trust. How much do team members trust each other? How much do uh, team members trust their, um, their bosses, their managers? How much do managers trust each other? Why would trust matter? Well, if I'm predictable to you, you are predictable to me. And predictability is the name of the game because it reduces the cost. So it's not about being nice to each other, although frankly, I think we could all be a little nicer to each other and nothing would, you know, there would be no problem with that. It's really, I mean, you can have, so in my lab, we're, we're, I'm criticizing my students all the time. That's like my main form of interaction with my students is I'm giving them critical feedback. That's what it means to be a scientist. You're mostly wrong, you know, much of the time. It's really about, is it predictable? Is it understandable? And is it delivered in a way that doesn't breach trust? So managing people's intentions, meaning their predictions about what you intend for them, like, you know, is just as important. That's why team building exercises are really good. You're basically giving people an opportunity to interact with each other outside of a work environment so they can develop trust in each other. And, and I think the important thing to understand here is that we are social animals. We evolved to not just manage our own body budgets, but to make, metaphorically speaking, deposits and withdrawals in other people's body budgets. The best thing for a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous system is another human. And, you know, I can text my friend in, you know, who lives in Europe, just three little words on my phone. She doesn't see my face. She doesn't hear my voice. These three little words can change her breathing rate, her metabolism, her heart rate, just, just three words. So what I would say is the following. We live in a highly competitive world. I don't know how it is in Australia. In the U.S., there's like this culture of like casual brutality where people just say the most, they speak to each other and they interact in the most you know, brutal ways that just strip people of their sense of human dignity. All of this is a public health issue <laughs> because it's contributing to all of the metabolic illnesses that we see. It's not the only cause. It's not a sufficient cause, but it is a contribution because every, you know, there is no single simple cause for anything. But for industry leaders, you should be really worried about this. You should be really, really worried about this because it's just making everybody less effective. And so having a culture of where, where human dignity is respected and where people are kind to each other, even when they're giving negative feedback, which is totally possible to do. Um, these kinds of things 
making people predictable to each other. These kinds of things are really helpful. They're, they're crucial. And it pays off in terms of productivity in all of its forms, you know. And, and on just on a purely human level as well. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, the thing I like to tell people is, you know, because we live in the West, we live in Western cultures and we prize individual rights and freedoms as we should. Of course, we believe that because we're, you know, raised in these cultures. And that sort of comes into conflict with this idea that we have that we're the caretakers of each each other's nervous systems. And sometimes that conflict is so intense for people that they get, you know, they don't even want to talk about it. But what I, you know, try to remind people is it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't, you can say, I don't care. And you may not care, but there will be a consequence. And, you know, you can be a complete asshole to people all the time, but there is a consequence for that. And that consequence will maybe be for you or it may just be higher taxes because you know so many people are, are going to have you know illness that they have to that has to be treated and you may say oh well my, i'm not contributing to that but you know that's just not true it's just not true so it doesn't really matter what you believe doesn't matter what you think doesn't matter where you think this is all hocus pocus mumbo jumbo it actually is real there's the data are what they are and you can decide what kind of a person do you want to be i mean do you want to be somebody who makes deposits or withdrawals? Do you want to be somebody who a great teacher, a great, you know, mentor, a great manager makes it easier, a great therapist makes it easier for someone else to do something hard because they're helping to bear part of the metabolic burden? You know, when you lose a loved one or a really close person who's really, really close to you and you feel like you've lost a part of yourself, it's because you have. You lost somebody who was helping to tend your body budget. And that person's not there anymore. And you're going to feel it for a little while until things readjust. There's a reason, more than one reason, why people die earlier if they're lonely or if they are socially isolated. And the reason is, it's not one reason, there's not one the reason, but a reason, one contribution is that they are managing their body budgets on their own. We just weren't meant to live like that. Even people who are kind of solitary, everybody has somebody, you know? Everybody has somebody. I'm sure I've heard you say once that the neuroscience hasn't had the same PR as as other areas. So what I want to give you the opportunity to do now, anyone listening to this today says, I'd like to hear more, like to read more. Where do they go? Who? What, 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 is there a web address? Obviously, we've got the books and I'm going to make sure all these links are in the show notes. Um, but where, where do you want people to head? Yeah, so you can go to my public website, which is lisafeldmanbarrett.com, all one word. And on that website, you will find podcasts like this one, you know, so the ones that we can provide links to, we do. You will find articles that I've written for The Guardian, for The New York Times, and various newspapers and magazines, all freely available by links. You will also find um, lectures. So there are some public lectures that I've given. Those are all there, and they're all free. Um, and then I also, you know, occasionally I will make a blog. I have a blog is occasionally I will, you know, to, you know, I'll have something to say and put it on the blog. Um, so those are all ways that, um, I can be, you know, where you can learn more about these ideas in, um, bite-sized chunks, I guess. And I would say if people are really interested in the books, you might want to start with, seven and a half lessons. It's just a, even though it's the second book, it's actually a smaller book. It's a bunch of little essays there. They were written to be kind of, you know, fun to teach you just, you know, a couple of like little tidbits of neuroscience that you can wow your friends with and, you know, your, your employees and, you know, um, and, um, and they're, they don't, you know, I've tried really hard not to tell you what to think about human nature, but just to like, just to think, just to think about what does it mean to be in the possession of a brain like this? What does that mean for who you are or, or who you want to be or who you could, you can be? Um, 
And so I might start there. It's just the easier one, I think, of the two. The how emotions are made, as you know, it's a you know it's a standard popular science book. So it's like 300 pages, and um, uh, it's still you know accessible to the public. But it's just a more it's more of an investment of time. As I said, I definitely recommend both of those, and I'll make sure that um, links to those books, links to your uh, website, are in the show notes. And um, all that's left to say is um, I hope that you are uh, coming through the, the the other side of the pandemic, and with a bit of luck, you'll find your way back to this part of the world um in in due course but thank you so much for your time I've, I've had a real blast there thank you thank you thank you for having me on the podcast it's really been it's been a pleasure if you found that interesting and challenging and you'd like to dig into um dr barrett's work a little bit more then as i mentioned all the links are in the show notes i've also included a link to james cohen's podcast in which he talks about his experience with the Widowmaker heart attack as we often say, of course, if you found that interesting, then there's a fair chance that somebody you know found it interesting. If you found it challenging, there's a fair chance someone you work with or live with would also find it challenging. And we invite you to share it as far and as wide as you can. Also, please don't forget to like the podcast, comment on the podcast, and of course, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just a small action in doing that is actually a big thing for us as it really helps the algorithms um, punch this podcast out to other people who so far haven't heard of it. Of course, don't forget, if you're interested in hearing more about our Habits of Leadership Academy and joining one of our cohorts in 2022, head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page there. Until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. Take it easy.